from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. On this show, Ibrahim Mustafa joins me to discuss his latest graphic novel, Count, being published through Humanoids. This sci-fi event story is based on The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. The original is not the swashbuckling tale. Those who have not read it may think it is. Then why did Ibrahim decide to make this story the foundation for his graphic novel? And why does the coloring and the lettering fit so well with his art style? And why is this graphic novel more satisfying for Ibrahim than a comic series or film issue he has drawn? Growing up, Ibrahim's favorite superhero was Superman, and he talks about how seeing Alex Ross's Man of Steel influenced his own art style. We also talk about his work on James Bond Origin and Solstice for Dynamite Comics, and why he thinks Timothy Dalton is the best James Bond. Why does Ibrahim think Dalton's James Bond was initially unjustly maligned by audiences, but grew to be more appreciated as Agent 007. We touch upon his 2017 Eisner-nominated digital comic Jaeger, the story of a World War II Allied spy bent on revenge against his Nazi captors. The book is only available in print from Ibrahim's website. Ibrahim also works as the art director for Color Kubik, and I ask him what has been his greatest challenge working for them as a consultant. I conclude my interview with my final nine questions in which we learn about his hobby of making amazing custom action figures, his favorite once-in-a-lifetime birthday experience, and one of his pet peeves that involves smartphones. So now, please put your cell phone on silent and join me in welcoming my guest, Ibrahim Mustafa, creator of Count, here now on Creator Talks. Abraham, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks for having me. You are so fortunate. You grew up in Portland, Oregon, where people go who are artists, writers, to that community to be around other creators, but you grew up there. I, that's right, yeah. What have you missed there since the pandemic and not being able to do as much as you want to do out and about? What do you miss the most? Uh, honestly, going to Ikea with my wife. <laughs> I don't get out much. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time working uh, by myself in my office. Unfortunately, my social life took a pretty sizable hit when I got into comics. And so that's kind of the uh, the main thing. It was the one thing that I kind of did as like a little escape. It was like, oh, let's go to Ikea and look at stuff. You can get lost in it. There's so much stuff. And everything gets put together with an Allen key. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got more of them than I know what to do with. out there in portland who do you stay in contact mainly your friends out there mostly nobody anybody would know (laughs) um i mean you know i definitely have you know friends within the comic industry but you know it's funny we don't all like get together you'd think so but we're all kind of i mean at least in my experience like you know we have helioscope studio out here that's a pretty tight-knit group and I've spent some time there they're all wonderful i kind of had a floating membership there for a bit just to kind of get out of the house but Typically, we end up seeing each other at conventions, either, you know, Rose City here in Portland or Emerald City in Seattle. And it's we always kind of joke about how, wow, we have to go all the way to Seattle to see each other. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that because when I go to cons, the artists, the writers, they want to hang out with each other as much as meeting the fans. But man, they're dying to get together because like you said, they don't get a chance to see each other much, especially when they're across the country from each other. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my good friends are in different cities and we, we end up doing Google Hangout work sessions a couple times a week, you know, so usually... When we do end up all at the same convention, 
we'll either hang out in the hotel lobby or we just go up to somebody's room and work on commissions and just kind of, you know, hang out and shoot the breeze <laughs> like we do online, but in person. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of your art, one of your big influences, and I'm not surprised given the beauty and realism of your art, is Alex Ross. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I was always into drawing, you know, my whole life. You know, I had comics as a kid and Superman was always my thing. And then I kind of fell out of it as a lot of people do. And then I got back into it toward the tail end of high school when um, Smallville was going mm -hmm. strong on the air and uh, it kind of reignited my interest in Superman. And then somebody gave me a book that was called The Complete History of Superman and it had Alex Ross paintings in it. And I had never seen anyone do that before with the character in terms of making such a realistic depiction of him. And, and it just totally floored me because I was always into the more realistic aspect of art when it comes to characters that I like that are make-believe. For example, the 1990 Ninja Turtles movie is still incredible to me. But as a little kid, I was so enamored by the fact that these things that I knew from a cartoon and like from these very stylized action figures was translated into this very realistic looking mm -hmm. puppetry that you could reach out and touch and it had texture. And uh, I was completely enthralled by that. That's kind of where the foundation of my love of Alex Ross came from was seeing, you know, something translated into like a realistic form and that I had previously known as either a cartoon or an old movie and just being like, Oh my God. <laughs> when he put out Marvels back in 1990, I had been used to reading comics. I'd read him for years starting with some of the Bronze Age comics. And I love the artwork of Jack Kirby and Gil Kane and John Romita, Steve Ditko. And then when he did this, it made him look real with his painted artwork. I'd never seen anything like that before. Everything he does looks great. I couldn't say, this is my favorite Alex Ross cover. They're all good. I couldn't even sure. begin to pick one. And then he had those giant books he did with Paul Dini. Oh, uh, yeah. I, 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 bought, I, yeah I bought all those, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, those are fantastic. Mind-blowing. We're so lucky. Growing up, what I had on television was the old Spider-Man cartoon show and Super Friends. And now, you grew up during when they had the X-Men and everything on TV, the cartoon. Now, look, at movies, TV shows, we're just spoiled to death with these things. There's so many. I can't possibly keep up with them. I have to pick certain ones. Are there certain ones that you still like to follow? I know there's a new Lois and Clark coming out soon. There's a show called Superman and Lois that's, I think, five episodes in now. It's fantastic. It's really, really good. It's kind of Superman meets Friday Night Lights in a way. It's a CW show, but it has a much higher production quality than the Arrowverse stuff. So, okay. I've, yeah, I've really been enjoying that. I know some artists, they like to draw things off the television. Like if they see an image, they'll try to sit there and sketch as they're watching. Do you do work while you're watching TV or do you just like say, no, I'm putting everything aside. I'm just going to focus on the show. Uh, it kind of depends. For example, with the Superman and Lois show, I carve out time for that because I just love Superman so much and it's cool to have this live action version weekly. But I do a lot of my media consumption while drawing because there's just so much drawing to do all the time. <laughs> and so, sure. uh, having a, uh, you know, something playing in the background is nice company for the long hours by yourself and things like that. It's kind of tricky. I can't always pay too much attention to something else while I'm working because for a long time, I wouldn't watch anything because it would be too distracting. But I've kind of conditioned myself to be able to, you know, and then I'll pick certain things like documentaries to put on while I work that I can listen to more than I have to have eyes on, which helps. But yeah, I, if I'm writing, for example, I can't have any kind of the only thing I can listen to are like movie score 
like soundtracks. If there's lyrics or people talking, it totally just screws me up. So right. <laughs> if, when I'm working and I'm working from home right now, I can listen to music. I can listen to podcasts. I can listen to news if it's something fairly mindless. But if it comes down to doing any kind of an analysis or really concentrating or coming up with ideas, can't do it. I got to have yeah. silence. Yeah, it's just too distracting. Yep. You learned from publishers and professionals and getting feedback from people, which is very important. But I'm impressed with your drive to learn through a lot of the how-to books that were out there. Would you mind sharing some of the books that you used to learn from and which one that you found was the most valuable and would recommend to other aspiring artists? Really, I guess the only two I used, the DC Comics Guide to Inking and then the DC Comics Guide to Coloring. Klaus Jansen having done the the former and uh, Mark Chiarello having done the latter. You know, nowadays, I think there's probably ample YouTube tutorials that will pretty succinctly, especially with current versions of Photoshop and whatnot. But, you know, at the time, I, YouTube was definitely a thing and I used that as well, but it was not as prolific as it is today. So there weren't as many just straight up. Here's a tutorial because I don't think people had quite figured out how to do that yet in terms of monetizing YouTube and things like that. So now, I mean, you know, anyone could find a multitude of different things, but those books were a great starting point. Definitely. I'm somebody who it's very helpful to have like visual instructions and something written down for me rather than trying to kind of reverse engineer what somebody is just clicking through in a video sometimes. So that was how I learned. But yeah, like I said, I mean, we're, we're in the era of like YouTube university now. So I feel like anyone who is interested can find that stuff pretty easily. I think the challenge would be to figure out which ones are the worthwhile ones and which are something that you don't need to spend your time with. Have you done any tutorial videos yourself? Have you done anything where you're demonstrating how your work is done on YouTube? I haven't. The reason being is kind of twofold. One, I guess I don't think of myself in a way of like, oh, you should do what I'm doing, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> And then there's a reason I don't film myself drawing either. I tend to be kind of sporadic and get up and move around a lot. And, you know, sometimes I'll just stop in the middle of what I'm doing to go let my dogs out or whatever. Right. So it's like, <laughs> I just, sure. I can never, I don't really work in a way that's conducive to filming. At least not anymore. I used to when I was first starting out because I would just spend hours stuck in one place because I was so driven and focused on breaking in. And, you know, I had to go to work after that. And, you know, now it's like the time is less finite in terms of how many hours I have in the day. I get the whole day to figure out what I want to do. And so I think I tend to kind of decompress my time a little bit too much because of that. I want to talk a bit about some of your other published work because it means something to me. James Bond, you're a big fan of James Bond, bigger than I am. So I won't even pretend to be. I've seen <laughs> some of them. I've seen a lot of the movies. Uh, I've read some of the novels. As a matter of fact, I got into those a couple of years ago and I found some 60s copies of paperbacks and I binged them for a while and then I stopped and got distracted and I have to get back to From Russia with Love. That's where I left off. That's what I have oh, to pick okay. up again. And you worked on Solstice through Dynamite and that was really good. I enjoyed that one shot holiday type issue. Thank Although, you. And there's a tree in there, but I mean, holiday, it's James Bond. Yeah, I definitely didn't want it to be like <laughs> no. too Christmassy or something, <laughs> right? Like I took the kind of theme of holiday and family and giving and because i also did six issues of james bond origin at the time i was like this may be the only james bond i get to write and draw and so i'm gonna make it the best james bond thing i can without 
adhering too much to the weird. Cause I feel like a lot of times I get an opportunity to do like a big two thing or a, a major character that I love. It's like, Oh, it's their day off or whatever. They're not in costume that day. I and see. I, right. why, you know? So I was like, damn it. I'm doing a James Bond story. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it is set during Christmas, but it's not like Die Hard's a Christmas movie. So this book's a James Bond Christmas book. No, it's not. It ties more to the James Bond of the novels. And the reason why I say that was because I was struck by how messy the fighting is, how brutal and rough it is. It's not all clean, smooth, slick. I think we see that more in some portrayals of James Bond. But in the books, it's rough. It's really, really rough. And I got that feeling of impact in some of the fight scenes in the book. Really felt like a struggle. And I haven't seen all the Bonds. I have seen the newer ones. But one I have missed, overlooked, like I'm sure a lot of people have, and I'm hearing more and more about this particular portrayal, is Timothy Dalton's. I have not seen those. Now, being a novice in that regard, why should I see those James Bond movies? Why should I make that a priority now? Because they're dope. Like, it's... Like, I, I, you know, I would say, like, because it would be your loss if you didn't, I guess. Right. Like, no, Dalton's just great. And uh, those movies are I think a lot of the distaste for them was a reaction to an entire generation of people who loved Roger Moore's portrayal of the character. When a more serious Fleming style take of the character came about, there was a lot of pushback like, oh, this isn't James Bond. Because I think people were expecting the bell bottoms and the winking at the camera and the, you know, running on alligators and and corny stuff like that. And so, you know, here came Dalton doing this very grounded, you know, more true to the novel stylized portrayal of the character. And I think people just weren't ready for it. And there's a lot more appreciation for the version that Dalton did. Absolutely. And another book you've worked on, and I have not had a chance to read it, but it was High Crimes Through Monkey Brain. And you worked on that with Chris Sabella? Correct. He's a great guy. Great guy. Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. Very good friend. Yeah. We did that through Monkey Brain, which was a digital first publisher through Comixology. And then it was subsequently picked up for hardcover publication by Dark Horse. And then eventually we ended up taking the rights over to Image. And so now it's out in a trade paperback through Image. I say Chris is a really nice guy, and I mean that because he's been on the show. I'll reveal this here. I don't think I ever have to the listeners of the show, but he was on. He was great. Had a great time. And I said, thanks a lot. And I downloaded it, and my voice wasn't there. Oh, no. That's not the case now. I'm checking. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I wrote to Chris, did you make a copy? He said, I didn't. I said, well, I'll just you know, go back and pop mine in. He goes, oh, yeah, that probably won't sound right. I'll do it again. I was like, really? Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's like, this guy's a saint. And I told him when I saw him at a con, you're a saint. I can't believe you did that. So, yeah, he's a really nice guy. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. He's a, he's a good dude for sure. And one other book I'd like you to speak about, this was yours, was Jaeger. It's uh, 48 pages, and it's on your website right now, as a matter of fact. That's the only way to get a hard copy. Correct. Eisner nominated. So tell me, that is a revenge story? Yeah, it's set just after World War II, and it's about a French-Algerian spy who was working for the Allies, and he was uh, incarcerated in a Nazi prison camp You know where he had to see a ton of terrible stuff and endure a bunch of terrible things. And so after the war... He's pretty fed up with the fact that a lot of Nazis are just getting off scot-free. They're escaping to South America. Some are being taken to the U.S. for 
you know, under Project Paperclip to work for the U.S. government. And there was just kind of a general, at the time, the Prime Minister Attlee was not into the idea of prosecuting them and finding them because it was just kind of like, honestly, similar to Biden and Trump, get, oh, let's get past this terrible time in our history and just move on, right? Mm-hmm. And so this character is uh, pretty pissed off at that, given what he endured. So he's going around and just hunting them down on his own and taking them out. And then he's approached by a former colleague who is with the newly formed MI6. And she says to him, like, look, we know what you're doing. Uh, Officially, we're not into it. Unofficially, these guys need to be taken off the map. And many of them have falsified death certificates, which means that they are technically, on paper, they're dead. And so you can't get in trouble for killing them. So here's that information. Don't get caught. Otherwise, we'll disavow you. (laughs) And so he kind of goes on a personal mission to um, take out a bunch of Nazis pretty much. And it it leads him around the world. And, uh, you know, he has to face some personal demons. I don't want to give away the ending or anything. It was a very fun project to do. All that in 48 pages? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it it was definitely an exercise in how do I tell this in a way that's not too crammed, but also does all the things I wanted to do. And I'm, I'm actually very satisfied with the way it came out. I think I was able to pull it off. And that one was through a digital first publisher, but I retained the print rights. And so I self-published it and I have uh, copies for sale on my website, as you mentioned. Um, and that one, yeah, I was lucky enough to get nominated for an Eisner for best either digital or web comic. I don't remember what the category was, but it was a great project that I got to do. And I kind of tried a different style for it in order to, uh, kind of work. I was working on multiple projects at once. And so this was like a experiment to kind of see if I could pare down my style to something a little bit more graphic in approach, like mm-hmm. an Alex Toth or Chris Somney or Darwin Cook on Parker, the Hunter oh. kind of influence. All very good influences. I have to check that out. Now, I just want to talk a bit about your day job because we all do things to make ends meet besides what we love to do. Like, for example, by day I fight crime and at night I do podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, you are an art director at Color Cubic a production design digital marketing studio in Portland. What are some of the projects, just in general, not specifics, of course, that you guided as an art director, just kind of a flavor of the kind of work that you've done? Comics are actually my day job. That's my full-time thing. Um, Color Cubic is something, I serve as art director there, but it's like in a more of a consultant type of fashion. I see, okay. uh, Yeah, it's it's run by a, a very talented designer, named Michael John. We became friends just through like a similar social circle. And then, you know, we had a lot of similar interests and became very close. And then he said, hey, you know, like I could really use you as like a second pair of eyes on stuff. So I'd like to make you art director. And so uh, a lot of it entails, you know, he'll send me designs that he's working on and I will, you know, give notes or sometimes I'll do mock-ups and say, what if we tried this? And then there are certain projects we collaborate on. We created a video game actually for a local municipality for their state of the city address that they do every year. So we essentially made a, a video game with the city's mascot where you go around and learn about the different achievements of the city during that calendar year. So a lot of stuff like that. We're also collaborating on promotional materials for my book, Count. So there's a bit of direction involved in that, too. I mean, Michael, he's really fantastic at his job. And a lot of times is very much collaboration more than direction in the end of the day because he's got a good head on his shoulders for this stuff. I bring kind of my illustrator eye to things and together we just try to elevate the content. What's the biggest challenge that you face as a consultant for the company? Uh, I think just time. Comics take forever to draw and he and I are both super busy, so... 
you know, he's got a lot of projects coming through his business and there's always something else that needs doing. <laughs> I guess I think that's the hardest part. <laughs> right. Time management, balancing. Yeah. What we're here to talk about specifically in this interview is Count, based on The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Same of The Three Musketeers. I've never read The Three Musketeers. I've seen the movie, uh, Raquel Welsh and Michael York and <laughs> the old one. <laughs> and right. uh, I've never read The Count of uh, Monte Cristo, and I probably won't. It's too long, <laughs> to be honest with you. Very I don't think long. I'll ever. I'm going to be honest with myself. Yeah. But you've managed to condense this into a graphic novel set in a sci-fi story. So you've taken something that it's become a classic. Dozens of movies have been made about it. It's like there's one every year or some form or another, either a direct adaptation or a spin on that story. And now you have spun it as a sci-fi so that it can connect with an audience who would appreciate some of the same values and some of the same themes from the original yet. You probably make it a little more exciting. I mean, I certainly endeavored to. The, <laughs> the book itself, I mean, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, it's an annotation of the swashbuckling tale, The Count of Monte Cristo. And it's like, that book is not swashbuckling at all. <laughs> the Three Musketeers is, and that's, you know, I think where, where the conflation comes in. But The Count of Monte Cristo is a very for lack of a better term, it's a bit dry. I mean, it's a fantastic book and I don't mean to cast any aspersions on it. It's not action packed. I don't think there's a single sword drawn in that book, maybe toward the end. And you know, it's 11, 1200 page book. So that's per page, not much uh, sword fighting happening. <laughs> it's such a fantastic tale of revenge. And like you said, it's been inspiration for so many things, whether it's direct adaptations or movies like old boy, things like that. And so I'm a big fan of the revenge genre. I love the kind of catharsis feeling that you get from watching evil people get their comeuppance because we see so much of that not happening in the world. <laughs> and so, you know, I was just kind of in that headspace and I started thinking about the kind of, you know, something that could be cool to do as a story. And I just thought, well, you know, The Count of Monte Cristo, which is a, a literary classic and it's in the public domain and it's just kind of begging for this kind of adaptation. And so that was kind of the germ of the idea. And then it, the rest of it was just kind of based on, well, what kind of stuff do I like to draw or want to draw? Because I'm so known at this point for being the kind of suits and guns, James Bond, high crimes guy. <laughs> and I really wanted to kind of stretch my legs and see what I was capable of and, and show people like some of the other things that I had been wanting to do. And so uh, yeah, I just kind of rolled that into themes that are important to me. And it's such a timeless tale for many reasons. And, and a lot of that is because the themes are still unfortunately present today, right? Wrongful incarceration, um, you know, classism, things like that. So I kind of wanted to amplify those elements of it. And I think doing it in a setting that is not anachronistic was the best way to do it because I think a lot of people are probably turned off by the idea that oh, I don't, I'm not really into 19th century France, you know? So, mm -hmm. so sometimes like you're not in the mood for a period piece. And I think putting it in a different setting opens it up to a whole new audience. Oh yeah. It's a great story. I, first of all, I wanted to read something based on the classic. That's what drew my attention to it. Cause I always find that to be a fascinating approach for writers and artists to take who work on comics and graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the action and your realistic style of art was just gorgeous. I want to just talk about the team for a bit because you have the book colored by Brad Simpson, which I don't know what it is. It almost looks like it's being painted. It looks fantastic. Yeah, Brad has a background actually as a landscape painter. So uh -huh. 
I mean, and it really shows in his work, like mm-hmm. the, the sweeping vistas that he brings his sensibilities to and the skies in the book are just so beautiful and realistic. And I do ink washes in the book. So essentially, you, you know, you have your black and white ink like you see in most comics. And then there's uh, watered down ink that you kind of apply the same way you would like watercolors. Right. So it's a very wet watered down medium. And that creates a pretty unique challenge for a lot of colorists, which is something, you know, I wanted to make sure he was into before we embarked on this journey together. (laughs) Uh, But he was game for it. And he finds a way to really complement it with the digital medium that he uses. Uh, So there's a lot of brushstroke textures that you can see in the book, and he, he manipulates them in a way to really approximate real life and real sunset clouds and things like that is just fantastic. And I don't want to understate the letterer because they usually go out as unsung heroes and Hassan does a great job because when someone doesn't, it obstructs the art. I can't follow the story. Not the case here. He's fantastic as well. I mean, he does really cool stuff with the storytelling. His work isn't just kind of there. It interacts with the art but in the right ways and at the right times to elevate it rather than you know like you said covering things up or or being hard to follow so uh, Haas is just really top tier as far as I'm concerned and so having him on this was another just absolute slam dunk does this book and now I know it has a revenge theme much like Jaeger and you like those kinds of stories does it hold any personal meaning for you I think we all kind of wonder Hopefully we all wonder how we can make some kind of change or impact from our small little corners of the world. And there are things in this book that I set out to kind of in my own little way, hopefully help provide some escapism for people, you know, during rough times. And uh, I wanted to normalize things like names that are maybe unrecognizable or difficult to pronounce because that's been my entire life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's a very uh, ethnically diverse cast in this book. And, you know, you don't usually see a a kind of brown coated uh, lead character the way that you do in this book, I don't think. There aren't specific country ethnicities in this world because I didn't, you know, it's just not something I was getting into for time and relevance and whatnot. But, you know, there are certainly analogs like the main character could be Middle Eastern. He could be South Asian. He could be. Latin. I wanted people to have a cool story that they could see themselves in the best that I was able to accommodate, you know, without it feeling forced. And I think I'm happy that I I feel like I was able to achieve that with this. And this is being published through Humanoids and the editor, someone who was instrumental in making sure that this project was greenlit was Mark Wade. Yeah. So Mark had been brought in, I believe, as an editorial consultant initially. Uh, and he was the one who really championed this book when I had sent the pitch in. Since then, Mark had been promoted to publisher. So I get to work with him, you know, on an even uh, stronger level because he oversees the entire publishing line rather than just being an editor for certain projects. And so, uh, yeah, that's been fantastic because Mark is one of my creative heroes. And so, you know, being able to to have his input and his notes and his encouragement has really just been pretty fantastic. Digging into this, researching this, I had no idea that Humanoids was a French company. It goes way back to when Mobius was part of it, and then they set up a base of operations in L.A., and that's been the main 
base, I think, since like 2014 or something like that. They're really starting to explode now in the States. And apparently one of the few European companies that are successful at selling translated books and books in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, they have such a rich pedigree going back to the early 80s, not late 70s, early 80s. Books with Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius and really just the sort of preeminent sci-fi comics, you know, of the last few decades. And so, yeah, it's really cool to be a part of that legacy now, you know, because it's something that was influential on me coming up. And, you know, as you kind of start to discover non-Big 2 comics, your taste refines a bit and you get into some of the more esoteric type of stuff, you know, you find like Mobius and things like that. And as you work your way up the influence trees to find out who your favorite artist was influenced by, et cetera, to have a uh, sci-fi book come out through Humanoids is definitely a a pretty cool thing to have happen. (laughs) And this is something that means something to you. This is something you want to do because I understand you're not into the fill-in issues. You want to really play with the character and have things matter. And people say, oh, all comics matter, or the publishers will say, this story matters. It does matter. But fans don't always feel that way. I'd like you to weigh in on that. How do you feel about stories that, quote, don't matter, not just as a creator, but also as a reader of comics? Is that important? I mean, to me it is because I don't I don't necessarily want everything to be part of the big event. For a long time, I haven't, I mean, I wasn't really able to read comics the way that I used to because you spend so much time drawing them and you just kind of pooped and you don't get a chance to get to the shop or, you know, you're just tired and you want to go to bed or whatever. And so for a long time, like I wasn't reading them regularly. Since the pandemic started, I've been able to get back into them much more heavily because I just started by trying to support different uh, comic shops and order their, you know, stuff from them online and uh, have it delivered and whatnot. And so then I had all this stuff to get through. So I started reading again. And, you know, it's nice to be able to dip in, read something that maybe is consequential, maybe it's inconsequential. You can kind of get in and get out and not feel like you have to, well, now I got to read eight other books. Mm, and, yeah, you know, right. so I really enjoy that. I love something that I can just kind of, and that's what I want to count to be. I, I'm really proud of the fact that you can sit down and read this book in a day and, you know, a few hours, however long it takes you. And then you've just kind of had a meal, right? Like it's this self-contained thing that kind of feels like maybe you just watched a cool movie, hopefully, and then it's done. And this isn't the only thing you're going to do through Humanoids. There are other projects in the works. Yeah. So Count is the first of a three book deal I have with Humanoids. And so I'm actually probably about 65% of the way through my next one, and then one more after that. So, yeah, I'm not done. (laughs) I know you can't talk about what they are, but do you have an idea when the next one would be out? Like what quarter or what, (laughs) maybe what year? I don't know how this works. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, Count was going to be out in September of 2020, and then COVID hit. It's anyone's guess, I think, at this point. I think certainly... Early 2022 is probably a decent bet for the next one. Could be sooner, depending on when we get it done and, you know, what their lineup is like. So, um, yeah, it remains to be seen. Well, your current work that's out, Count, where can people get that? Uh, If you go to www.countcomic.com, you can watch a, a fairly cinematic style trailer that I put together for it. And then there's also a link to where you can purchase it via Barnes & Noble or Amazon. There's a comic shop locator link there. So you can type in your zip code and find out where the nearest comic shop is to you. 
And then there's also a link to bookshop.com, which is an online alternative to Amazon that will send a portion of proceeds to uh, local bookstores or small bookstores. And then, uh, yeah, it's also on Comixology, so people can find it there as well if they prefer reading digital these days. Now it's time for the questions I ask all my guests. The nine questions. Abraham, what do you like to do for recreation outside of Ikea? (laughs) (laughs) I, I make custom action figures. Oh, really? Yeah. Essentially, I'll sculpt stuff onto them to change their, you know, armor or clothing or whatever. I'll uh, sculpt or augment heads for them. Well, I'll repaint the factory sculpts because a lot of times the factory paint doesn't quite do them justice. I typically use the Mezco 112 line, uh, which is like a little six inch. It's almost like a mini hot toy. Like it has fabric clothing and stuff like that. I've made like a Days of Future Past movie Wolverine. <laughs> Out wow. of those, I've done Tom Cruise from The Last Samurai, where I pieced <laughs> together a bunch of samurai armor from disparate action figures and got a hold of a shrunken Hot Toys style Tom Cruise head that was <laughs> shrunk down to uh, six inch scale and then uh, added a beard and hair and painted it. And I've made um, Henry Cavill from The Witcher. Mm-hmm. Tons of stuff. I've probably. I've made over a hundred of these things, I think, in the last couple of years. So <laughs> what's the most unusual one that most people probably wouldn't recognize, but you like it. It means something to you. The ones that I make are that they are recognizable. Okay. I mean, that's that's kind of the thing. Like, cause a lot of times it'll be something that doesn't exist. And so I go, Well, I want that, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I make it. Um <laughs> it all started with making a John Wick. And of course now there are probably five, six different John Wick figures you can get, but that was the first one I had done. But I think as far as my most unusual thing that you will probably never see another action figure of this character would be Phil Connors from Groundhog Day. Oh, okay. I got a hold of a uh, Bill Murray Ghostbusters head and then uh, I made a little um, little Phil Connors. He's got a little cup of coffee in his gloved hands and a scarf and trench coat and all that stuff. That's awesome. (laughs) Now, thinking back, what was your favorite birthday and why? Oh, this one's easy. My 22nd birthday, I was very into breakdancing from high school on. A big group of sort of like my hip-hop friends that were either DJs or rappers or dancers or just kind of hung out in that scene. And uh, for my 22nd birthday, I hesitate to call it a bar because that sounds like a watering hole. And most of us didn't even drink, but they had really good music. Our friends would DJ there every Friday night for this thing called Heavy Rotation where they'd bring in a different DJ every Friday. And so we go there and dance and just have fun. And it was our cheers in a way. Like, we, you know, we knew everybody there. They knew us. We got in free, all that stuff. For my birthday, my friends, they sampled a Queen song where Freddie Mercury's belting out my name because it was a song about a Greco-Roman wrestler from Egypt who had the same name as me. <laughs> and so they sampled that and they sampled Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday song and they made a song where they rapped about me full of inside jokes and stuff like that. And then they got... Uh, a bunch of underground rappers that I like to call in and leave a happy birthday message to me. And then when I got to the bar, they had Superman the movie playing on the screens uh, that were all over the place. And they had made me a cake and they had Superman party favors. And it was absolutely incredible. I will never have another birthday like that again. <laughs> wow, that's great. You know, I, I get a little birthday card. I'm like, wow, you shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> Man, I, it went all out. Oh, it was incredible. They got me a <laughs> gift card to a, a place that had really cool sneakers that I like because I used to collect sneakers and stuff. So, yeah, it was a really uh, it was a really amazing kind of once-in-a-lifetime experience. So, 
that's my very long answer to that question. <laughs> Collecting sneakers, that's unusual. And I often wonder why, but then people say, why do you collect comics? So I understand. <laughs> right. Hey! Hypothetical situation, you're stuck on a deserted island and you're allowed one book or a set of books if they're related for pleasure. This is just to pass the time, something you really want to read or want to reread, and it can be a comic, graphic novel, or a book. I would definitely bring the uh, complete oversized hardcover collection of Scalped from Vertigo. Ah, okay. That's my favorite comic series, and I always endeavor to reread it, and I get through the first volume, and then I get distracted by life, and then I (laughs) have to start all over again. So I have yet to actually... You know, honestly, being trapped on a desert island with it would be kind of nice because I'd be... (laughs) have a chance to. (laughs) Yeah. Now, when you are resting, relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? I really mostly drink coffee and carbonated water. Okay. (laughs) I love a nice craft root beer. That's kind of my, you know, when I'm feeling like going real crazy. (laughs) I try not to have it too much because the sugar intake and stuff. I guess that'd be my answer. A nice root beer. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Unfortunately not. I, I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I really can't think of anything. I don't feel guilty about any of the few pleasures that I do partake in, like my action figures and my Superman show and stuff like that. But that's a goal of mine. Maybe New Year's resolution. I'll make time for a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> what is your biggest pet peeve? Oh, when people uh, try to talk to me while they're chewing on food. Oh. Don't do Like, Why? Swallow, and then we can have this chat. I I realized I had one, and this happens a lot in business. I won't name any names. When I'm listening to someone speak, and someone comes in late, or they get distracted, and they go, what did he say? Did he mention this? I'm trying to listen. Oh, yeah. Get here on time. You don't have to worry about it. (laughs) Right. And with TV, usually I'm streaming, so I can always stop it, back it up. Let's find out, shall we? But I can't split my attention. It just drives me. And today, nowadays, people can text you while you're in that meeting. So your phone's going while you're trying to listen. Oh, okay. Speaking of texting, my other pet peeve is when people send you a text message. They have something to say to you. But rather than type it all in one message, they send you two or three with like fragmented sentences about the same thing. It's like (laughs) type it all out. Hit send one time. Because I'm sitting here trying to concentrate on something and the phone's going Mm -hmm. because you can't string a thought together. That drives me nuts. (laughs) It reminds me of The Office where one of the guys developed this thing called Wolf and you would get a fax, a text, an email, a phone call all at once about the same thing. (laughs) And that's how I feel sometimes with the technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. What would you say was for you the biggest missed opportunity? Personally, professionally, both? Either one. That's a good question. I don't know that I... I really have any. I either try to seize them or I don't dwell on the ones that, uh, well, okay, here's one. I don't know if I called it a missed opportunity. I was offered a book. I won't name it because I don't you know, want to get to <laughs> Right. Um, and I declined it for several reasons, which I still think were the right decision to make today. The folks who went on to do that book ended up seeing pretty big returns on their career. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't think it, I would have experienced that same return because I don't think I would have enjoyed the project, which is a big part of why I turned it down in the first place. Okay. And it also paved the way for the stuff that I'm able to do now, which is, you know, having essentially carte blanche 
to do wh- whatever kind of stuff I want to with this three book deal. So I wouldn't say that it was necessarily a missed opportunity, but it is kind of a fun, like what if thing, I guess, if I want to get, you know, hypothetical one day. <laughs> Final question. Finish this phrase. I took a risk when I took a risk when I, I guess when I was developing count, you know, I had regular gigs coming in and those are great when you're uh, a working artist and you're, you know, a freelancer and you're paying your bills. But I, I wanted to take a chance on doing something that I really felt passionate about. And so I turned down some stuff and, you know, kind of reformatted my schedule and whatnot to be able to take the time to put this pitch together and endeavor to make this book. And so um, I guess that would be a risk. The beauty of this book is that, you know, it can be an evergreen. So I, I'm not holding to like, oh, FOC or anything like that. So <laughs> in comics, especially when something is in the periodical form, it gets talked about a ton and then you just kind of never hear about right, it. Again, right. You know? <laughs> and I'm trying not to do that with this book because, you know, I feel like it's something that can be kind of an evergreen if so long as people are into it. So absolutely. Yeah. I feel bad for the periodicals where it's like issue one, two, three, and there's all that pre buzz and the book comes out and then let's go to the next thing. You know, you don't hear any more about issue two, three, four, five usually, which is disappointing. Yeah. And that starts honestly at the publisher's level. You know, I've had series come out issue one, there's a lot of press and and stuff like that. Issue two, you get one or two articles maybe, and then three through eight or however many is never mentioned again. And I see that in the catalog too, brand new series. And then as it goes on and other ones come up, their space gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, you know, because comics sales wise tend to have about 50% attrition from issue to issue. Mm -hmm. And it makes you wonder if it's a chicken or the egg scenario where, you know, is it because the publisher stopped talking about it or did they stop talking about it because there's that natural attrition? Like, Mm. who knows? You know? Well, sometimes they go up. I mean, I know that is generally the course, unless there's a creative change or direction change that's big and it gives it a jump start. But yeah, you're kind of fighting that tide of that attrition. Well, especially, yeah, I mean, ongoings tend to ebb and flow, but like a mini series mm-hmm. will absolutely just die off. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they don't even get to put out the last couple issues because it doesn't meet the diamond threshold or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is why a graphic novel's great. <laughs> I honestly, I, you know, a big part of it for me is I, I want to be a part of the solution. And I feel like monthly periodicals, I know for a lot of stores, it's the bread and butter and, and they do just fine with them. And but I feel like from what I've seen, you know, if you give a store a complete story in a book at a decent price point, that's good quality, they can sell it forever. And that's the change I endeavored to be a part of. So, you know, I was really happy to find humanoids because of that. So it was pretty cool. Count available now, print, digital, check it out. Ibrahim Mustafa, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Hey, thank you for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. All right, folks. Thanks so much for joining me for my interview with Ibrahim Mustafa. What do I have in the works next? Well, I do have that interview coming up with a comic book creating couple, and I have an interview scheduled with Samuel Gordon London, host of Comics for the Apocalypse. He has a comic series coming out, and we're going to talk about that. Now, neither one of those are recorded yet, and I usually don't say what's coming up, but I'm confident that these two will be completed by the time this interview that you're listening to now has been released. Beyond that, what lies ahead for Creator Talks? I don't know. I have some ideas. I formed an exploratory committee, well actually I've spoken to the missus, about what lies ahead. Is it time for a change? Maybe it is. 
Anyway, more of my thoughts about that after my next interview. And right now, they are currently coming out every other Thursday, except for special releases and holidays. For example, the most recent one on Memorial Day with Garth Ennis on his graphic novel, The Tankies. Okay, now it's time for the usual information. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. There I post my Saturday and Sunday Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Copper Age comics from my collection and something about that comic's significance. I see posts out there where someone just says, covers and posts a bunch of covers with no explanation and it gets way more engagement but that is social media there's no rhyme or reason for it sometimes it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and i don't think social media should be the gauge of the quality of one's work it really should be a form of social engagement sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't the most important thing is that you enjoy and listen to the content that's what matters to me so i want to hear from you either through social media or directly through email creatortalks at gmail.com that's creatortalks at gmail.com and by the way i have regained access to my old youtube channel that has all my videos on it and all my old podcasts so i am now continuing to post them on that youtube channel creator talks well the old time zone clocks on the wall say it's time to go so for creator talks this has been your host christopher calloway until next time <laughs>